natural resilience, which is where you can connect with that inner calm. You've rewired the brain and the body to let go of the addiction to the stress and the drama and the cortisol, so that if you get knocked, you don't have to go through the middle of the pain and the stress and the drama. Instead, that inner pendulum does a bit of a wiggle and then just comes back to being calm. You don't feel like everything's a fight anymore. You don't feel like you've got to go out there and push, push, push to succeed. You get more connected with being who you really are. You connect more deeply with your intuition, the universe giving you the incredible signals saying, say yes to this one, avoid that one. And suddenly you get back in flow, you are riding the waves rather than being dragged down under them. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Claire Yosa and dive deep into hats one, four, and seven, the soul, the entrepreneur, and the seeker, as we tame our inner critic and finally ditch our imposter syndrome. Claire is an eight-time author, speaker, consultant, certified NLP trainer, certified yoga and meditation teacher, entrepreneur, and subject matter expert on what I believe are the two of the most prevailing issues facing entrepreneurs today, burnout and imposter syndrome. So if you're hungry to make a bigger difference in the world, but secretly suspect you're getting in your own way, then let's welcome Claire to the seven hats. Claire, welcome to the seven hats. Thank you so much for having me here today. Of course, you know, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. I know that the seven hatters will get a lot out of a couple of really important topics that we will be discussing. One, as entrepreneurs, we're grinders. We just don't stop. You know, nothing can get in our way. We listen to figures like Elon Musk, who touts working 100 plus hour weeks. And, you know, we also get lost in the marketing talk, trying to convince us that success is one dimensional, which is not, by the way. You dedicated your life studying imposter syndrome, resilience, and mindset, which I believe are all part of the culture. But that's set for us as entrepreneurs by the marketing departments of Madison Avenue, right? And, and I think what's happening is that they're trying to set us up for failure. I think you can set us free from the archaic mindset that we built up for so many years. And I'm myself ready to delve into all that. But before we get to all those golden nuggets that you're going to oh. share, I'd love to find out Claire's backstory. How <laughs> did you become an expert or even want to dedicate your life to these important subjects? I know that it all starts with some part during your formidable years. So the first question that I have is, Claire, where were you born and how was your childhood like? I'm a Brit. I was born in the Southeast of England. I'm part Italian, part British. 
And I also lived in Texas, in El Paso, for a while when I was a kid, before we moved back to the UK. And that was actually quite a formative point for me, because when I was in the States, I had this cute English accent, I had curly blonde hair, I was so high, and everybody would just make a fuss of me. They would fight to sit next to me at kindergarten, we would say the Prayer of Allegiance together, yeah? And I came back to the UK, and unlike in the States, where being different was valued and I felt special, it was like a bucket of ice-cold water. I hit school in the UK, and all the girls thought I was a freak. <laughs> wow. I had a tan. I had this weird old accent, this mixture of English and Texan. I was freaking out because it was a cold country and I wasn't used to it. I was used to being able to boil eggs on the bonnet of the car, yeah? <laughs> and the milk going off before you got home from the supermarket. And that was a really big shutdown for me. I had no idea at the time, but I felt such a deep level of rejection. Wow. And it really took me about 20 years to realize that's what had happened, is coming from this environment where I felt accepted, special, and loved, to one where I felt rejected and an outsider for being different, and I had to conform to fit in. And so that was quite an important point for me at that stage. And very soon after that, my mom actually had a nervous breakdown. She was wow. in hospital for about six months. She never really recovered from that. And I think those two facts combined set me on a mission. So by the time I was in my teens, I was desperately passionate about how people tick, what it was that meant so many people felt stressed or upset or miserable or anxiety. And that set, it sowed the seeds for what's become a lifelong passion for helping people remember how to genuinely smile instead of faking it. We have a parallel moment here when I grew up in New York. Well, actually, I was born in Israel, grew up in New York ninth grade, my parents moved to upstate New York, which is a very small town. I would think maybe uh -huh. like 1,500, 2,000 people in the entire town. I felt just like you. Mm. I was different. I was a city kid. I came in with a Walkman back then. You know, I'm, I'm aging myself, but with a Walkman and sitting in class thinking I'm this cool kid and everyone rejected me. And I think that's kind of the passion that we have as ones who are trying to help others Right. And that's kind of where it stemmed from. Right. We were hurt as kids and we don't want anybody else to go through that. And I think that's really powerful. So you're a teen. You're so what happened? You went to university. Yeah. What did you study? Tell me a little <laughs> bit about that. I, I had a boyfriend when I was 15 who was building what we call in the UK a kit car. So you mm -hmm. take kind of the chassis from one car and the engine and you put a body on it. And he built one that was called a Dutton Phaeton, which is a really iconic kit car in the UK. And that's what made me realize, it's like, wow, how this stuff all works, how it all goes together. How, how does this thing not blow up every time you press the accelerator down? And that's what made me realize I wanted to study engineering. So that's actually the route I took. Um, I did toy with psychology. I also toyed with German and Russian, um, ended up studying mechanical engineering and German and really getting into that. Well, I specialized in Six Sigma as well. So how do things work? How do we create processes that don't go wrong, where it's impossible you don't, for it to make a mistake, where you don't have to cope and all that kind of thing? That was how my brain got wired through that wow. process. So it was partly the engineering degree, partly I studied some of it in Germany. So there's a lot of logic and rational common sense in the way I think, but it was always that problem solving. It wasn't until I graduated and I got a first and I won the Best Engineer of the Year award. I got into my first job and suddenly went, 
I have just pulled the wool over everybody's eyes for five years. They have no idea I'm faking it. And today might be the day I get found out. And wow. I had no idea that was called imposter syndrome. It didn't matter how many great appraisals I got. Every single day was another opportunity to be found out as not good enough and having faked my way to where I was. Wow. We're going to dig deeper into that. So you became an engineer, a German yeah. engineer. I'm not going to hold that against you, by the way. Just kidding. You know, my, my co-founder is an engineer and we all love him <laughs> despite the fact that he's way smarter than all of us combined. But I digress. So I want to go back to that story because you said something that was really interesting. The beginning of your understanding of imposter syndrome. So you were in engineering school and there was a pivotal wow. moment in your life when you were speaking with the only other female student in your mm -hmm. class. So yep. tell us about that interaction. How did it go? What did you say to each other? And how did you really kind of understand that you're actually faking it? And were you really thinking that at that time period? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I wasn't faking it because they'd have found me out and booted yeah. me out. Yeah. I would think. <laughs> and all of, that's, all of that's irrelevant when you're running imposter syndrome. So this was actually, I was a senior engineer specializing in diesel engine technology and manufacture. It was one of those moments where we just grabbed a coffee and we were walking through a part of the factory that was being re rebuilt, remodeled. So it was empty. And it was just that moment of just like looking at her, like sort of out of the side, like that kind of like, <laughs> do you lie awake at three o'clock in the morning feeling this way too? And I was like, just that fear of what if she says I'm an idiot and I'm some kind of freak. And that's the last time she ever talks to me. And she's the only other female engineer in the factory. And that suddenly becomes really lonely. And she just kind of half looked back at me and went, you too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was really life-changing for me because I realized that I wasn't broken. I still didn't understand what it was, but I realized there was nothing to fix, that this was something that was happening to two people in the factory. I've since discovered it was affecting a huge number of people. Now I know what I know and I've researched what I've researched. So much of the behavior I saw in that environment was down to the fear of being found out as not good enough, yeah? the posturing, the firefighting, the anger that so many people were exhibiting. So many of these are warning signs, the micromanaging, the bully bosses. But in that moment, I realized it wasn't just me. Yeah. And if it wasn't just me, then I wasn't broken. Yeah. What a pivotal moment in one's life where you almost know that that's your destiny because you have this aha moment, right? But you went through school, German engineer, and where does a German engineer go? You got to go to Dyson, right? There's nowhere else you're going to go. Either BMW well, <laughs> or Dyson. You got to, those are the only two. It's an incredible company, right? Yeah. And the engineering, I actually did that at various automotive manufacturers. I went to Dyson to become head of market research, actually when I left engineering, because although I had this breakthrough, this aha moment, there was also an awful lot of Me Too stuff happening in the engineering environment at that time. And I just hit a point, like my favorite Italian word is basta. Enough. Yeah. Enough. I love I'd that hit word. that point. I actually escaped by going traveling in South America for six months wow. and learning Spanish. And then when I came back to the UK, my role there as head of market research at Dyson was being the translator between the engineers, the marketing teams, and the customers. So that's three-way speaking to be able to really help the engineers understand what the consumer's problems were mm -hmm. and help the marketing people know exactly how to communicate that. Wow. And so you then decided after, how long you were you at Dyson? 
about three and a half years, I decided. <laughs> yeah, you decided, <laughs> all right, I've, I've suffered enough in my life. I need to suffer a little more. So you decided to become an entrepreneur. This was the funny thing is my whole time at Dyson, on paper, I didn't have any qualifications for that role. In my engineering time, I'd been doing what we were calling guerrilla market research. You know, we would get 200 customers to a hotel in Stuttgart and do a weekend of focus groups and interviews. But on paper, I didn't have the background to become a head of market research. And I never once in that role felt imposter syndrome. Never once. Which shows that it's context dependent. Yeah. yeah? And there came a point I'd been studying psychology. I'd been studying NLP, so neurolinguistic programming because that was so useful for being able to understand those subconscious motivators with customers, what they yep. really think rather than what they say they think. And that's where I realized that I wanted to make a bigger difference. Back in my factory days, my nickname was Smiler because I would walk around the shop floor every morning to get my coffee. And I had a bet with myself, how many people can I get to smile? Because they all looked so miserable. Yeah. <laughs> and this then became my big thing was what can I do with the skills that I have, the experience I have that can help people reconnect with their real smile rather than their fake smile? And I realized that I couldn't do that working in somebody else's company. Were you scared of going out on your own? <laughs> you know, when life gives you these kicks. <laughs> so I, I wanted to do my NLP trainers training to really take my skills to the top level. Not because I wanted to train NLP, but I knew it was like boot camp for the soul. And it would force me to clear out a lot of my stuff. My boss had given me time off to be able to do my NLP training up to that point. And then at trainers training, they refused. So I quit. I didn't have a plan. <laughs> I kind of had a half plan. I hadn't ramped up my business. I just jumped off the deep end and trusted I would learn how to fly. Does anyone have a plan when they become an entrepreneur? I don't think so. <laughs> we should. We should. It you should so have a plan. But, I, but it's, it's like pregnancy. If you knew the pain, you probably wouldn't do it. So it's just, yeah. it's, it's one of those, it's one of those things. At least I heard because I was never pregnant yet. <laughs> All right. So what did you end up specializing in? So you, you, you started, you had the NLP training and now you're on your own. So what uh -huh. are you doing? How are you adding value to customers? So I was doing two things. One was leadership development, specializing in working with CEOs and managing directors, specifically on one-to-one -one coaching and mentoring. And the other side was the more generalized leadership development, applying what I knew from the Six Sigma and also from the NLP and the psychology of peak performance. And I studied bits of neuroscience. So bringing all of that together. So it was still at that stage, really quite left-brained. Mm -hmm. And it took time and more butt kicks from the universe for me to get a much more holistic approach. But those initial clients, they tended to be sent to me because they had recently been promoted. They were a rising star. And they'd suddenly turned into a micromanaging bully boss and nobody knew why. And they were about to be performance managed out of the company. Wow. So how was that like initially? Were you struggling to get your first clients? What was that experience like? That was, I was very blessed. I had a number of great corporate contacts, people who I'd helped out over the years, often without even realizing it, who basically they, they helped build my reputation. There was a lot of word of mouth because of the results I was getting. What I was finding with these managing directors and CEOs is it was always imposter syndrome. Yeah. And they, the, the coping strategies had stopped working. And so they were exhibiting that need to control their own lives and everybody else's, that need to micromanage. They were passing their pain on. The results I was helping them to get meant they were telling their friends. 
Wow, that's awesome. I mean, networking and relationships are so important in business. You're now with these top executives and imposter syndrome is, is coming up over and over again. And so it's 2018. You're like, you know what? I'm going to write a book on imposter syndrome. And of course, when writing a book, you need to become an expert on the subject. So <laughs> you go off and read every book that's out there. Yeah, actually, I didn't. Very deliberately. I did. No, no, no. I mean, Ditching Imposter Syndrome was my eighth book. And I was nagged by my peers and my mastermind for years to write that book. And the reason I held off so long is when I teach something in a book, I want it to be what I call pajama ready. So it will work for you if you're sitting there at the end of a long day in bed, half asleep, you will still get the results. Yeah, because I can't be there by your side to answer your questions. And to really hone the processes that I teach that are very intuitive in a one-to-one -one basis or a small group coaching program, I needed to really, really focus, okay, what's Six Sigma? What are the core elements that make a difference? What are the elements that might distract someone and have them go down a rabbit hole? Yeah. So creating that process to work in a book took me a good couple of years. And also I read a couple of books that people have published on it and I just did so much face palming because so much of it was well-meant, it was from the heart, but it was teaching yet more coping strategies instead of actually dealing with it, that I just decided just to stop and just stay in my own lane. I didn't want to know wow. what anybody else was doing. I knew that what I was doing was getting people incredible results, and I didn't want to be influenced by other people's work. So there was really no research at that time, right? Real research. So what does Claire do? No. What does Claire do? <laughs> well, Claire goes off on her own, and creates a study on the subject, which is pretty bold. Tell us about the study. How did you do it? What was that like? How difficult is it for an individual to just go out and say, hey, I'm going to create a study that's never been done before and attempted. And <laughs> before we get to the results of the study, um, I'd also like to know what you learned about yourself as you progressed and ultimately completed the study. So how did you do it? What did you learn about yourself? I did look for a large-scale research study on imposter syndrome to be able to quote it in the book, yeah? Give credit where credit's due. And there were lots of smaller-scale studies from universities, but nothing that was big, nothing that was quantitative that was really going to give us the answers that we needed. You know, there were some telephone polls, but they hadn't really gone into the so what. They were just giving us a bit of the, the data. I used I, my master's as a research master's, even though it was in engineering. Having been head of market research, I knew inside out how to design a great research study. And it does not start by guessing what questions you want to ask and guessing what the answers will be. It's the <laughs> other way around. You start with depth interviews where people tell you what the questions need to be yep. through those conversations. Then you run trials of the, of the questions with open answers so you can collect what then the tick boxes need to be. So you design it that way around rather than in a kind of a committee meeting room. So we did that. So we had a pretty good feel for where the results were going to go. We then did 2000 person research study. Nice. And that was the hard bit because I wanted it to, to represent as many different kinds of people as possible. And when you, you know, what were the blocks? I had a real block on saying to people, could you send this around your company, please? <laughs> because back then imposter syndrome was still so taboo. Yeah. And a lot of CEOs actually refused to circulate the research questionnaire in their company because they said, I just don't want to open that can of worms. We're just not going there. So that was actually the hardest bit was keeping going 
because I knew that at 2,000 people, we'd have confidence intervals on the data that we could be pretty sure we could actually quote the results. Then lots more depth interviews, talking to people who'd given certain answers to understand what that actually meant. What does that look like? What's their 3 a.m. self-talk like? How does that feel? What have they tried? What's worked? What hasn't? To give us the context to explain why we saw the numbers we did. So this little thing of, yeah, let's run a research study kind of became a full, full year's full-time work. Yeah. And what did you learn about yourself doing the study? Well, my, my, my kids are quite funny because they I've got two, three boys, so two in their late teens and one who's 10. The thing is that when you do that kind of stuff, you just do it. You know, we had a conversation at the weekend and one of the boys said, oh yeah, I told my friends last week you're an author and they looked up your Instagram account and then they, they Googled you and they're like, whoa, you're everywhere. <laughs> this kind of thing is just what we do when we're entrepreneurs is we see a need, we have a solution, we go and do something about it. So I, I think really for me, what I realized is I always knew I was an action taker. I also knew that I know how to take action that will suddenly snowball in size. But I just felt driven that we needed to have this data because I knew that without that data, companies would not invest the time, the money, and the energy to actually allow people access to solutions. So it was just keep on going. But as I know that you know from your work too, that this stuff is just normal to us. Yeah, yeah we just we, do it. That's exactly what it is. The results. You got this study back. You're looking mm -hmm. at all the data. What is imposter syndrome? So although I'd already been working on this stuff for like 15 years, I realized that to make my process pajama ready for people, there were actually some steps missing. Stuff that I was doing intuitively with my clients that the research showed me had to happen first. And it also showed me exactly what order we need to build, up, build those five core steps that we have in for it to really create results. So one of the things that was really important that came from the research study is I realized that the myths about imposter syndrome are actually what hold people back. So imposter syndrome, if we talk about it as being the secret fear of being found out as mm -hmm. not good enough or not knowing as much as you should or being a fake or a fraud, despite the outside world thinking you've got your act together, yeah, it's that secret fear of others judging us the way we're judging ourselves. One of the things that keeps people stuck is actually the myths. I can't ditch imposter syndrome because it's incurable or because I need it to perform or without it, I'd be arrogant or it's just inevitable or there's nothing you can do about it or it's a sign that I'm high potential. If you're holding on to those myths, you can imagine how the unconscious mind is going to go, whoa, this thing's incurable. I don't care what that crazy British lady is saying. We're just not going in there. Yeah. <laughs> so. The research study helped me find the myths, which I hadn't even realized were running at the level they are. It helped me to create tools that people can use to clear these myths in minutes that then start to open up that little bit of hope inside that, whoa, it doesn't have to be this way. I'm not the only one. There are things I can do. I don't have to put up with this. this I talk about the bridge of coping strategies. Yeah, So we've got the imposter syndrome gap is the gap between who we see ourselves as being yep. and who we think we need to be to achieve something. We could self-sabotage by just saying, I am not going over there. Or we build the bridge of coping strategies to be able to get to the other side. Because sometimes we just have to in business. Yeah. It's that deep breath. Absolutely. Yes. And those coping strategies, that bridge, it can feel really nice and strong, or it can feel like a rickety rope bridge over a ravine, meaning that pushing through the fear is terrifying. And that leads to anxiety, performance issues, mental health stuff. 
So what I realized we needed to do was to let go of anything, release, clear out the really deep stuff that means there's that gap in the first place. So we allow ourselves to become the version of ourselves that actually makes that change. Then we don't need the bridge of coping strategies. And we realized through the research that nearly everything in Google and pretty much every book that's been written on the topic is all about how to build a better bridge of coping strategies rather than how to close the imposter syndrome gap. Wow, that's really amazing. You know, I've, I've always wondered about this and maybe you can, maybe you know, not even sure if this has ever been studied, but I was wondering if introverts are more prone to <laughs> imposter syndrome or is everyone pretty much could be susceptible to it? So I get asked this question, okay? So it's not down to whether we're running that introvert preference or extrovert preference. It's about how we feel about that. So if being an introvert causes us stress, and makes us behave in a way that's out of kilter with who we really are, mm -hmm. it will widen the imposter syndrome gap. Yeah, meaning we'll need a better bridge of coping strategies, or we need to do the work to allow ourselves to become that version of us. So if I look back at my corporate days, so I am an, an off-the-scale introvert. I love being on stage. I love meeting people. <laughs> I, but I, I don't am... believe it. I don't believe <laughs> so, it. No, because I'm not shy. But, but you know, after a conference, if I've keynoted, and everybody's like, Claire, come to the bar. I'm like, hiding under the table with a book saying, <laughs> go away. Yeah, <laughs> just give me time out, guys. So I really get that. But if somebody's having to be in a corporate environment and pretend to be an extrovert, then that will make imposter syndrome worse because they're not being who they really are. Yeah, the same can be for an extrovert. For example, if an extrovert is actually really shy, so they really need this energy they get from other people, but that comes with a great big dollop of fear, that will open up the gap. So it's not that introverts or extroverts are more susceptible. It's whether we're actually being able to be true to who we really are or whether we're having to put on this act that's opening up the imposter syndrome gap. Wow. You know, in, in your experience, is there really a cure or is it a bandage? I mean, meaning does one ever lose oneself that or is it just a work in progress like so many other issues that we deal with on a day to day basis? So I, I do meet a lot of very successful business owners who simply are not running imposter syndrome. They're the ones that are just out there and just doing it. If I look at how it runs for me now, after all these years of playing with this stuff, say, so yeah, okay, I had to do TV a couple of weeks ago for something and they wanted to do it in my home, which is like, can you imagine how much cleaning? Yeah. <laughs> I had the BBC World Service radio come a couple of years ago and I cleaned the house hot to, top to bottom. So you can imagine what it was like with a camera. So my initial thought on that was, well, yeah, I know I can do this. At a skill level, I can do this. My next thought was, oh, who am I to do that? And I was like, oh, okay, that just means, <laughs> yeah, it just means, okay, so there's a bit of me that's got a little thing running here that means I've stopped being who I am. So I just did my stuff, let go of that, closed the imposter syndrome gap, no big deal, yeah? Wow. <laughs> and, you know, the little thing that came up was, what if people judge me because of my home? What if people judge me because they're seeing the whole Claire and not just shoulders upwards? What if people judge my message? And it was like... Yeah, but the film crew thinks it's worth listening to and it's going to make a difference for people. So let's just do it. Yeah, so those little thoughts that come up no longer lead to that torrent and cascade of what ifing and catastrophizing. They're my signs of, okay, it's time for me to grow to be next level Claire. Great, let's do that. No drama. Wow, you know, it's, and, and that's based on my philosophy. So many issues that we have in life they don't really go away. You just get better at working them. You just get better at dealing with them. You just get better at showing up, right? And it doesn't 
shut you down with fear? Because that's really not just imposter syndrome, but how many other issues do we deal with on a day-to-day basis? If you work on them and you understand the physics behind them, the, the reasoning on how to get it done, I think it just makes all the difference in the world how you live your life, right? It does. And I I talk about the two types of fear. This is something when I'm working with people on imposter syndrome, I don't do sticky plasters, say band-aids in the States. We get into that root cause stuff. It's right. Let's actually clear out what's running this rather than the surface level behaviors or thoughts so that it actually does just disappear and you don't need to push on through. And the two types of fear, I talk about legitimate fear, which is where, so I joined the parachute club at university, you know, glorified tablecloth strapped to my back Saturday morning hangover, jumping out of a perfectly serviceable aeroplane. Yeah, because. (laughs) So that's legitimate fear, you know, heart pounding, hands going clammy, breathing increases and goes up a chest breathing as you're thinking, this is a really stupid thing to do, but it's good fun. So I'm going to do it. Then we have the other side of the fear, which is what if it was Fred who packed my parachute this morning? Because you could earn like 10 quid or something if you packed somebody else's chute, which helped pay for the cost of the job. What if it was Fred? Because I know Fred was really out on the town last night and I know Fred's not in a great state. And what if my, my wires have got tangled? And what if I forget to land with my feet together? All of this what ifing, this catastrophizing was creating the same fear-based response, but none of it was real. So the yeah. legitimate fear is what keeps us alive. But what I call mind story fear the what ifing, the catastrophizing, the worrying, the body can't tell the difference between the two. And the mind story fear is what makes us hold back on taking action, even though if we're really honest, the vast majority of it is not real. That was really awesome. I think think it's going to benefit a lot of people to understand real fear, reptilian brain fear that makes sure we don't get eaten by a mountain lion versus I'm like fearful that I'm not good enough or whatever it might be. And that's just, it's so prevalent in the in, in the society these days, you know, and yeah. it's not the real fear that's prevalent. The the false yeah. fear is. And yet it's one of the leading cases, leading causes of burnout, of poor performance. You know, we've just updated our research study in the last week for 2022, and it's included burnout this time. And yeah. that mind story fear, that worrying, the what ifing, the catastrophizing, it fires off exactly the same biochemical reactions as the reptilian brain fear. And it's exhausting running on adrenaline and cortisol. And if we look at things like what's been going on with the pandemic and people have had this low level anxiety for two years, not to Mm -hmm. mention what it's done to everyone's businesses, people don't have the tolerance anymore to be able to deal with that stress, the stress hormones, the cortisol that are caused by the worrying, caused by the mind story fear, the mind story drama, because we get addicted to it. It's like, I'm exhausted. Great. Give me a drama. That'll give me a shot of adrenaline that'll keep me going for another two hours. Yeah. And these become thought habits wired in the brain. So the crux of my work is actually helping people to rewire the brain and rewire the body to no longer be addicted to those chemical reactions so we can retune the inner radio station to be a genuine cheerleader. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I um, I listened to a podcast episode that you guested on, on the topic about becoming an author. We spoke about that a little earlier with your kids, for which you're in, again, a time success story. Okay. That's not just one. Now I know how hard it is to write a book, which is why I've never written one, but (laughs) this question is not about authorship. It's about a single word. And that word is contrived. You know, that word changed your life for 30 years. And I think it has an inner intermingle with everything we just been speaking about. And I, I want to touch upon that a little bit. So tell us the story 
And then let's talk about self-belief. So when I was a little girl, I was passionate about ballet. Yeah, I wanted to be the next Anna Pavlova. And in the summer holidays, I would write books. I would write stories. I would make scrapbooks about ballerinas. So from about the age of six, I think I knew I wanted to be an author. And then I remember at about 15, handing in a school essay in English, having written a story. It was back um, showing my age in the days of Dallas, where Bobby Ewing just suddenly came back in the shower one day. Yeah, <laughs> I love Dallas. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so this was the very definition of contrived that my teacher was using because my story used a similarly contrived plot mechanism to create the twist at the end. And I was really proud of it because at 15, it's like, yeah, I just completely gave a curveball to the reader except it probably was rubbish. And I got my first ever B in an English essay. Wow. And for me, that was devastating. For the teacher, it was probably the 60th rubbish story she'd had to mark that day from a, a, a teenager using pretentious vocabulary to try and sound clever. And she just went B contrived. I had to look up what contrived meant. I mean, can you imagine having to go to a dictionary to understand your insult? Yeah. <laughs> and so I decided that I, would, I could never write a story. My kids grew up. I never once told them a made-up story. I, I cannot write a story. I had published five books and still didn't consider myself an author because I had never written a story. And then there came a day about four years ago now where this need to write a story actually became too big to ignore. So I thought, I'll just go on a creative writing course and sit there with lots of other people who have got free time in the day and write rubbish and nobody will ever mark it and we'll all be polite. And, and suddenly I realized, actually, I really do want to do this. So I, I did my work. I did my stuff, cleared out the block, used my magic kit of amazing tools. And I felt no different. I thought that didn't work. Wow. And <laughs> four days later, I'd mapped out the plot line of three books and two of them have since been published. <laughs> wow. Because I'd cleared the block. Yeah. And I actually dedicated one of the books to that teacher because if she hadn't done that, I'd have written my novels too young. Hmm. They wouldn't have had the depth in them that I would want them to have had. That's not because young authors can't write well. It's just where I was on my life journey. And you know, like, this is an engineering thing. You can kind of pull an elastic band and there comes a point where you just can't actually pull it anymore and it's just going to ping. That is what happened. I'd kept pulling that elastic band going, I want to do this, but I'm scared. I want to do this, but I'm scared. I want to do this, but I'm scared. And suddenly I couldn't hold it back anymore. And the elastic band made the decision for me is this stuff has to be done. It has to get out there. And I will never forget the summer of writing that first novel. It was just pure joy. Up every morning at five before the family, two solid hours of writing, listening to the birds waking up. I mean, what more could you ask for? So you're saying that Obviously, we all have moments in our lives when others believe in us or their words towards us shape our lives, right? Mostly when you're young, right? That's when your formidable years just kind of mush your brain together, right? For some of those words, they're very negative, right? Connotations oh. such as the word contrived, and they hold us hostage for so many years. So are you saying that for anyone that's really suffering right now, it's a block and you just need to unblock it? Is that what it is? Or is there another way of dealing with these harmful words that keep us beholden to our fear. Do these words hurt? 
Yeah, you know the whole thing about sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I don't mm-hmm. know if you have that in the States as well. We it's do. rubbish. It's rubbish. Words hurt more than sticks and stones the vast majority of the time. The sticks and stones, legitimate fear. That's going to physically hurt. The words, they become mind story fear that we then use over and over again to hurt ourselves without realizing it's what we're doing. If somebody's aware that it's causing them pain, then we can do what I call creating our own basta moment. Yeah, run waiting till we hit rock bottom. And believe me, that's a t-shirt I've got at least a couple of drawers full, yeah? We can create an instant rock bottom is saying basta. My basta moment is it's, it's enough. I refuse to continue feeling this way. I can refuse to keep giving my power to choose how to experience my life to those words or to that situation or to that person. I reclaim my power. I'm going to get the support I need to find out what I need to do to now set myself free from this so that I can start becoming more of me, unshutting down and experiencing life the way I want to, day by day, fulfilling a tiny bit more of my potential. We either wait till rock bottom happens to us, which is almost always pretty horrible, or we have that faster moment where we say, today's the day. I'm turning this around. Might not know how, might not know how long it's going to take, but that is the rock bottom. And now I'm choosing to reclaim my power, and I'm going to get the support I need to release this to let this go. So it no longer chooses my thoughts, my emotions, and my actions. Yeah. It's almost like, I mean, this is what I've always believed. There's only two moments in life where change can happen. One, when you make a decision and two, when you hit rock bottom. And those are the two places where you either say basta or the (laughs) the universe will just say, you know what, here's a big boulder, deal with it. And then you ultimately deal with it. So let's, uh, let's switch topics for a moment, although I think it's very much related to imposter syndrome, but let's talk about burnout and resilience. Mm. This is a topic that is very relevant these days. You know, you actually have a full podcast episode and you do a mm. podcast too. So you're an amazing, amazing individual, but that's episode, I believe, 25 of the Solid Leaders podcast mm-hmm. for those who want to dive deep into the subject. But I know of multiple people in my life who are experiencing burnout, right? Even though they might not know it themselves yet. I can see how some entrepreneurs who have imposter syndrome try to prove themselves by overexerting and overcompensating. So in the burnout stage, they try to push through or be resilient because I think it's just in our blood as entrepreneurs, right? So maybe we're getting advice from well-intentioned mentors or public figures on the social media stage to tough it out because you see that all the time. But you say that resilience is far from being the antidote to burnout. So first tell us what burnout is, and then tell us why resilience actually causes more of it. Thank you. I will. So the burnout and imposter syndrome research study, we published it last week. It's taken us just over a year of full-time kind of deep dive research. We've been really working on it since the very start of the COVID pandemic though. And burnout is Oh, people describe being soul tired. Yeah. On my knees is no longer enough. It is the deepest mental, emotional, physical exhaustion. The kind of thing that no number of bubble baths or spa days or yoga sessions is going to fix because we're bone tired. 
It means it's hard to concentrate. We're making mistakes. We've lost our motivation. It often leads to anxiety and depression, enormous stress levels, the mind story drama and fears going absolutely haywire. You can tell in your business if you're heading to burnout because firstly, we often become even more of a workaholic to be able to compensate for the fact we're exhausted and low on energy. Yeah. And we end up almost resenting the people who pay us money to work with us because it's going to leave us even more exhausted. It trashes marriages and relationships. What we found in the research study is that with the male respondents, because they are so much more hardwired for that pushing on through, it was them it was leading to a lot of physical health issues. With the female respondents, it tended to lead more to emotional and mental health issues like depression and anxiety. But the thing is, once you really hit burnout and it's this sliding scale, it can take years to recover. Mm. I hit burnout the first time. <laughs> that phrase says it the all. The first time. <laughs> the first time when I was 20 and I ended up with ME and I ended up having to repeat the year at uni. And even now, I have to really watch how I choose to spend my energy. I've got all sorts of little warning signs my body gives me that says, Claire, that week was too much. Yeah, as an introvert, it takes so much energy, for example, to do a keynote talk. I will deliberately empty my diary for most of the week when I'm doing the keynote because I know otherwise the day after the keynote, I'll be in bed with a migraine. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we need to learn to manage our energy. So there's a certain amount of body energy, but there are three core pillars to burnout. There's our culture, our environment, and our habits. And the culture, you said earlier on, it could be given to us. Yeah, Madison Avenue, this is how it's going to look when you're running a business. Mm -hmm. Our environment, that can be our working environment, our client environment. It can be you know, toxic customer, dare I say it, <laughs> somebody over-demanding. Never, be, never toxic customers. Never, no, absolutely. All my toxic customers, I've loved you. Yeah. Yes. Um, it can be our physical working environment, juggling home and family or carer responsibilities. But the third pillar, which is a really big one, is our habits. Mm. And what we found in the research study is there is a direct causal link between imposter syndrome and burnout and vice versa. If you're burning out, it makes imposter syndrome worse. If imposter syndrome gets worse, it increases the likelihood of burning out. So there were two major risk factors for entrepreneurs in the context of burning out. The one was imposter syndrome, the other something I call toxic resilience. And this is that kind of I've just been punched in the face by a life curveball, but I'm going to get up tomorrow and pretend I'm fine. Yeah, that pushing on through, the gritted teeth determination, the hustling when we're screaming for a day off. Yeah, something goes wrong, I will just push harder. I will just work harder. This means we're living under chronic fight-flight-freeze, that stress yeah. response, the cortisol, the adrenaline from the sympathetic nervous system. There's a bit of the body that controls that mechanism that can then get stuck on this leads to hypervigilance where we have like this radar constantly on the lookout for threats. Seeing threats where they're really not, that throwaway comment from somebody on social media that suddenly knocks us for six. And this massively increases the, list, the risk of burnout. It keeps us awake at three in the morning. It floods our system with anxiety, pushing on through that fear. There's actually neurological reasons why it makes us make more mistakes. It stifles creativity and innovation. And it's that pushing and the bouncing back, that toxic resilience that's the other huge risk factor. So instead, I talk about natural resilience, which is where you can connect with that inner calm. You've rewired the brain and the body to let go of the addiction to the stress and the drama and the cortisol so that if you get knocked, 
you don't have to go through the middle of the pain and the stress and the drama. Instead, that inner pendulum does a bit of a wiggle and then just comes back to being calm. You don't feel like everything's a fight anymore. You don't feel like you've got to go out there and push, push, push to succeed. You get more connected with being who you really are. You connect more deeply with your intuition, the universe giving you the incredible signals saying, say yes to this one, avoid that one. And suddenly you get back in flow. You are riding the waves rather than being dragged down under them. Does that make sense? It, it totally makes sense. Now, is that part of the five-step solution for those who are currently experiencing burnout? For experiencing burnout, the first thing is actually being able to press pause on the stress. That is definitely step one. There are techniques you can learn that actually switch off that fight, flight, freeze mechanism in under a minute. Mm. And even if you're doing it 30 times a day, it means by the end of the day, your stress levels will be here instead of way up there. The second step, that's rewiring the brain. Learning how to choose which thoughts to feed, how to press pause. It's not about making your brain go quiet. It's about saying, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole today. So you actually break the connection between the external stress trigger and the internal brain stress response. You allow it to go through neutral, which allows you to start training. There are specific techniques you can use that really train your thoughts to retune that in a radio station to become more positive and encouraging. But then the missing link, step three, is rewiring the body to release the addiction to adrenaline and cortisol, which so many of us have been running on, yeah? Because otherwise, if you haven't cleared that out in the cells, the cells, because then they're connected with our emotions and our thoughts, they're just going to say, hey, Claire's brain, I need another stress thought because I haven't had any cortisol for a couple of hours, yeah? So you have to rewire the body too. And then my step four, that's all about resetting toxic boundaries. Because when you do that from this place of, actually, I'm feeling pretty calm and I'm a lot more confident and I'm a bit more courageous. The way you reset boundaries then is very different if we do it when we're feeling like we're in the middle of that fight, flight, freeze response. That might be toxic boundaries with clients. It might be the toxic boundary that so many of us have with overworking. It might be doom scrolling on social media. There are things in our lives that sap our energy. And when we learn to say, you can have this parcel of my energy each week and when it's gone, it's gone. Mm -hmm. And you really mean it. It frees up so much energy. And it's also about what we consume. The food that we consume, the media, the news that we consume, that allows us to really reconnect with that sense inside of, I'm here and I'm okay. And then step five, I always love to finish with this on any program I run is consciously creating your future from that more expanded, calm and excited version of you. Wow. You know, and especially now, I can just imagine the burnout of the entire human collective population because of the last, obviously, COVID and now the war. It's just negative news day in and day out, right? So finally, and that kind of, I think, will put the bow on all of this. I want to talk about mental health. And Uh hat number one, which I call the soul. It's the self-love hat. Now you studied yoga and meditation. How did that affect your life? And does it help with the Parsons syndrome and burnout? And if so, how does it do it? And what do you recommend people do with uh, this type of uh, healing modality? So I started with things like the NLP and the psychology. There was a real turning point for me when I realized I was studying it to be able to help my mom. And I couldn't Mm. because she hadn't had a best moment. There was too much what's called secondary gain that she was getting from the pain that she was in. And then I realized I needed to use it to feel okay about myself first. But the cognitive techniques, even though they were amazing, they were not enough. 
In that time period, I went through a domestic violence marriage breakup. I became a single mother of a toddler pregnant with six month old (laughs) on its way. My self-talk really was not in a pretty place despite all the tools I had. And I do remember at three o'clock one morning, just screaming at God saying, I can't do this. I don't know how to stop going down this what ifing hole. That is what turned me around to realizing I knew that my thoughts were creating my reality, but I didn't know how to control my thoughts. All I knew how to do was like paper over the cracks. And I found it took me 10 years becoming a meditation teacher and then a yoga teacher. I found the tools that worked, but 10 years was just too long because not many people (laughs) want to spend 10 years on that journey. So that inner engineer, I combined it with the neuroscience, I combined it with the psychology and the NLP and picked out the tiny things that you can do in 60 seconds a day that mean within six weeks, people on my programs are sitting there saying, my boss says they don't recognize me anymore. Yeah, I've changed that much. Because six weeks, all of us could give six weeks, 10 minutes a day. If we really want to do something, 10 years is a really pretty big ask. But this is what got me into the meditation was realizing that I needed to be able to learn how to choose which thoughts to feed. And nobody was telling me how to do it. So I thought maybe I'm the one that's going to figure it out. (laughs) Wow. What knowledge, what wisdom. You know, I'd like to close out my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? Wow. So I had, I'm going to be very, very honest here. As you can hear the old throat chakra going there. I had to stop being the victim. Mm. I had to stop being the victim of other people's expectations, other people's power games, other people's projections, my, my imagination of what they might be thinking. So it was about me reclaiming my personal power to feel comfortable in my own skin. I had to release being the victim and I had to allow myself and it's still an ongoing journey to become a little bit more me every day, knowing that as long as I can sleep with a clean conscience, if somebody doesn't like that, it just means they're not my tribe. And I have to be okay with that because we can't help everyone. Thank you for being real with us, Seven Hatters. Thank you for the life's work that you put forth in order to help so many. There isn't a better time in, I think, the history of human existence than it is today with all the overdoses and suicides and depression, negative news that's been happening. It's really a low in the consciousness of humankind right now. And I think that we need more souls like you. We need more light beings like you to help so many rise up. And thank you for that. So the question is, because everybody's going to ask me and I'll put it all in the show notes. Where could I find Claire and what is she up to and how can she help me? You'll either find me on my website, which is clairyosa.com or hanging around on LinkedIn and Instagram. And most of the time I'm the only one, unless somebody has been out there cloning my profile, which we all know happens sometimes. If you want to know whether or not imposter syndrome is something you need to take action on, I've got a free quiz based on the research, which you can find at clairyosa.com forward slash quiz. And the burnout research study is at clariosa.com forward slash burnout hyphen research. That's the white paper, takes you through everything that you need to know from the research. And also you can go and do a burnout quiz and get a free action plan based on your responses. Highly recommended to all the seven hatters. Really seek Claire out. She is a wizard. She's incredible. My research has led me to so many aha moments and especially this 
episode as well. Just full of gold nuggets. Thank you, Claire. I'm honored to have you on The Seven Hats. Thank you for gracing us. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy talking with you. Same here. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Claire. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as, What Can We Hang Our Head On? And here's my takeaway. I remember the first time I experienced burnout. It was 2010, and I was, as Claire described, soul-tired, battery-drained. It was the deepest mental, emotional, and physical exhaustion I have ever experienced. And it was years in the making. When I started my first company back in 2005, I plunged myself into work as I was birthing my company. I had no experience as a first-time entrepreneur, and my imposter syndrome ran rampant. I made every mistake in the book and relied heavily on others' guidance rather than my own intuition. A couple of years later, the business was a success, and my ego ran wild until it wasn't. When the financial crisis hit in 2008 and everything started to spiral out of control, I experienced chronic stress for years, which led me to lose sight of everything in my life. And despite that, I forced myself to hyper-focus on saving my business. Claire was correct when she said that pushing through the stress led to mental and physical issues that reared their ugly head in 2010. And the burnout made the imposter syndrome even worse. It took me over a decade to get my life in order, which was only possible by focusing on my seven hats. That's why I'm so passionate about this subject. I know how entrepreneurs think. I understand the needs for us to succeed in our ventures, but it can't come at the expense of our mind, body, and spirit. I want to thank Claire once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from her wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selick, and I tip my hat to you.